This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. I want to go to uh, to Kitchener right now. Uh, Lisa Hefner reports for CHC. She's been covering the Robert Badgero trial from the beginning, and she has now been there for the end of it. And uh, she joins us now. Lisa, how are you tonight? I'm well, thank you. I'm uh, just standing in my live truck outside of the courthouse. Uh, most people have left for the night, so we're kind of just taking a breath. <laughs> it's quite exciting always near the end. You spend months in a trial, and then it comes down to waiting and waiting. It's been four days of waiting, and then a mad panic and rush, and just everybody at the edge of their seats when you know there's a verdict and wondering what it is, and and then all the emotion just starts flowing when you're in the courtroom. Well, so let's it's a go. Pretty crazy time. Let's go through some of that stuff. But first of all, you mentioned the four days. Normally, four days. I wouldn't think. I think the Bosma trial was about four days, give or take. I can't remember three or four or five. It was in that uh, ballpark. Um, but so four days is normally would not be out of out of sorts. Out of you know would it be a reasonable time for a murder case. And yet, because of the background of the Badgero trial with all with these two hung juries, do you start to wonder if you're looking at another one? You always wonder, but if you look back at the Badgero trials, the first one where he was convicted in 2001, the jury took eight days. And then then the two hung juries, there was one with four days and one with five days before they decided they couldn't make a decision. So you're right, it's not out of the ballpark, but I think you're always just on the edge of your seat just wondering. And in this case, the jury had no questions. They didn't come back into the courtroom at all. So we had no sort of idea of what point they were at and looking back at the evidence or where their thoughts were going. Usually you can make a lot of educated guesses based on the questions the jury is asking. But we were, you know, there was radio silence completely. We were all just kind of wandering around the halls, wondering if anybody had heard anything at any point. So it was pretty pretty nerve-wracking. And if you think about, uh, not for me, but a lot of the people here for this case have have been here for 20 years. Steve Frab, Wayne Bennett, Tom McKittrick, some of the investigators, the uh, Crown, Cheryl Zick, was an articling student in the first trial in 2001. So you can imagine what, uh, she hasn't come out of the courtroom yet, but you can imagine what she's going through in her emotion. And then the family of Diane Rowendowitz, you know, they've never spoken publicly, and they did uh, speak to us during this trial, and it was really cathartic for them. They told us they feel so much better now. This is a better result for them. Even then in 2001, they feel better. They feel like they've you know, had their say and let people know a little bit more about who Diane Morandowitz was and why she's still missed. And, uh, and so it's been, a, it's been a cathartic experience for them as well. They were, you know, Diane's brother, Steve, has a brain injury and hasn't been able to make it to court. But his son, Carl, and his mother, Carl's mother, Lorraine, have been here just in tears, uh, especially this last day. And, and so after so many years of this, uh, I, you know, the emotion is really something to see. What was the response in the court? Was it a, after everything that's happened with this trial, was there an element, did you get of surprise at the verdict or was it, what, what, what happened when the verdict was read? So I think it was more relief from the Wurundwick side, you know, Carl and Lorraine hugged and wiped away tears. Robert Badgero started shaking his head slowly uh, he was asked if he had anything to say. They did sentencing right away, and he did. He proclaimed his innocence once again, said he'd never had to force a woman to get sex. The only women in his life he'd ever hurt were the women who loved him. And uh, and he said something to his son after he was handcuffed and he was led away in custody. He said something to his oldest son, who was the only one of the only family members left in court. Uh, and his son just hung his head and started sobbing. So I don't know what was said, but there was definitely a lot of, uh, you know, sadness from the Badgero side. And Carl Wurendowitz acknowledged that when he spoke to reporters outside the courtroom. He feels bad for Robert Badgero's family because he feels they're victims as well. Uh, So, yeah, difficult for that family uh, and relief, I would say, from the Crown side. Now, this is a question that could probably take about four hours for you to answer, but nonetheless, you're a a pro. You you can whittle this down. What was the big difference, if there was one, between this trial and the others? In your mind, in your best educated guess, because we don't talk to juries, in your best educated guess, what was different this time than the other times? The the jury had more evidence. 
So the, the first time, this is the first time that the jury was made aware that the telephone call, the 911 call that was made to police two days after Diane Rendowitz was found, had been traced by police. They knew that there had been a 911 call, and they'd heard the 911 call, and they'd heard that people had identified Robert Badger's voice on the phone. But the previous juries did not know that that call had been traced by police and that it was traced back to a phone booth steps away from where Robert Badger had been working. That was just one extra coincidence that made it just too improbable that Robert Badger's story could be true. The reason the other juries didn't hear that information is because the police had a bit of a made a bit of a mistake. So when they were supposed to trace the call, when they arrived at the phone booth at Gate 6 to Fasco, they were supposed to pick up the receiver and say, okay, we're here, we've got the line, you can stop the trace. They didn't do that. They just cut the receiver and kept it for evidence. So because that step wasn't taken, previous defense lawyers argued that it wasn't admissible, it wasn't a full trace, so they disallowed that evidence. This jury was the first one to hear that extra piece of evidence. The phone call came from a phone booth right beside where Robert Badgerill was working. The alternate suspect, Brian Miller, worked at DeFasco, which was far away. It made far less sense that he would walk across town when he was working and make a phone call like that from DeFasco. That is a, by, by your definition and by reading about it and hearing your reports, I mean, that was a devastating piece of evidence. And Lisa, if we are to interpret that that may have been, because that's the difference, if that's the big, the crux of this case, potentially to put the jury over the top, what is the possibility? And I'm even hesitant to ask this question, that that particular decision by the judge to allow that evidence could be appealed. And what happens if that were to be determined to have been wrong? Do we have another trial? So that wasn't the, this judge that allowed that evidence. That was the Supreme Court. So when they, when the, this crown went back after the third hung jury and said, we want another trial, we want this evidence included, it was the Supreme Court that decided, yes, this evidence should be included and we'll allow another trial so that this evidence can be heard. So in order for there to be any other successful appeal after so many years, there would have to be a significant new piece of evidence. So not looking, not looking like a fifth trial, hopefully. I would be extremely surprised. Robert Badger would have to have really good grounds to appeal this one. Now, Robert Badger, correct me if I'm wrong, but he spent, what, 11 years in prison already? Close to 11 years. So, that would, uh, so he's automatically uh, in prison for life with no chance of parole for 25 years. Those uh, near 11 years would count towards those years of parole that he's, before he's eligible. That's what I was wondering, whether those do actually count. Yes, they do. So when you talked about the family of Diane Rowendowitz, um, and you talked, I know her nephew had spoken. Did they speak today after the trial, or when you talked about them talking, was that during yes. the trial? They talked afterwards today? Yes, they came out, um, you know, Carl was tearing up. He was so relieved. He just... I think he spent about five minutes thanking everybody uh, who was involved. But he, he, he said, he told me, I asked, how does this feel different from 2001 when Badro was convicted? He said, this is so much better. This finally feels like the end. This finally feels after 35 years that we can move forward. And it's, you know, the first time they've been able to tell people. You, 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 they, they think about Diane every day. They really miss her. Carl told me he still feels a gap in his life that his aunt's not there. Tell so, me tell me again, because I, I honestly don't remember the reason. Uh, were all the three previous trials in Hamilton? No. Um, I can't say for sure. I believe the first one was in Hamilton. I believe the last one was in Kitchener. The, and, the most recent hung jury was in Kitchener. And, I'm and, not positive. And why again were they in Kitchener? I mean, was it just to get a fresh jury, or what, why was it chosen? Typically, yeah, uh, I wasn't in court for those legal arguments, but uh, I have read reported that a change of venue is often sought if a case has high prominence in a particular community. The justice system figures that the jury pool is probably tainted by having read already too many details about the case, so they move it outside the jurisdiction. So presumably people in Kitchener haven't read as much about Robert Badrow or heard as much about Robert Badrow as people in Hamilton. It is a, um, it, it's a remarkable story. I mean, it really, uh, to have it end this way after the, the twists and turns, again, I, I come back to that question of whether there was a sense of, 
Um, you said it was surprise or it was relief for the family. What about for you? What about for the the other people who were maybe a little less vested interest? I mean, less no family connection, no blood to to tie you to this. Um, was it a surprise that it came back this verdict? Uh, I, I no. Or did you expect uh, that this would be the answer? I can't say I would expect the answer. Uh, I was thinking this would be the answer. That was, I, I guess, that would be my guess. There was definitely emotion. I can tell you, Susan Claremont from the Spectator was sitting right in front of me. She was covered the last three trials. She was cheering up, getting emotional, waiting for this verdict to come in. So even you know the investigators have spent. Steve Crab is the guy who, back in 1970, 1997, was looking at 50 different sexual assaults in a particular area of East Hamilton and realized there were two separate patterns, realized there was a second rapist on the loose. He's the one that tied it all together. And uh, and he's been emotional today. Uh, I guess not showing it as much, but real relief in his eyes. So even investigators, even the Crown, Michael Fox came out, and I think he was getting a little teary, just so grateful that the jury, as he put it, got it right. Last thing before I let you go is um, there were options, I understand, for this jury. He got convicted of first-degree murder, but they could have chosen lesser second-degree or manslaughter, correct? Uh, yeah, almost always. it's a, There are lesser-included offenses, so a jury has to decide whether uh, they believe the person intended the death, whether they the person knew that their actions could cause a death and whether they went ahead and intended that. So they have to put themselves in the head of the person on trial in order to come to a decision. It's really traumatic for a lot of jurors. And we saw jurors from former trials come back to see how this trial was progressing. And today in court, was uh, one of the jurors that was dismissed from this trial. So when this trial started, we had 14 jurors that went down to 13. One was uh, kicked off at the beginning. 13 jurors sat through two months of evidence. The very last day, they had to draw a name from a drum and kick one person off because they only wanted 12 to decide the verdict. So that last juror, still completely invested in the story, was sitting in the courtroom to see what happened. So definitely... Far more people than just the uh, the murderer and the victims who have been affected by this 35-year-long process. Well, and the reason I asked, as I wrap up, the reason I asked whether they had choices, was there any evidence in this case that would have suggested that if, in fact... Um, if in fact Robert Badgero had killed her, that it was accidental. Like it seemed to me from everything I read, if you were going to convict him, there would be no way to get around the fact that this was an intentional kind of thing. It seemed to me it was either going to be first degree or nothing. Well, I think when you uh, find a person who's got a purse strap wrapped around her neck, who's been drowned as she was strangled, and then to top it all off, had a giant tire put over her head, after she was raped, I can I think that uh, that that is true. Lisa Hefner from CHCH, great job. Appreciate you joining us tonight. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, thanks, Scott. Nice to talk to you. That is uh, again Lisa Hefner, CHCH. You've been watching her uh, cover this whole story, but yeah, she kind of you know, if you didn't know the story. Well, you probably will by tomorrow because you'll probably read something. I'm sure most people have been following along, but Lisa kind of summed it up pretty well at the very end there about what happened to Diana Renderwitz back in 1981. Uh, the the allegation, which has now been proven in court, was that Robert Badgero raped and murdered her and then made a 911 call, not giving his own name, that now in this case was traced back to him along with other evidence. And there were, if you followed this case... There were so many quote, quote, coincidences that really it, once you added that bit that Lisa talked about, where you now have the evidence of the payphone and the phone call that was traced back, once you add that in, the number of coincidences become just impossible to overlook. And, and when that happens, and when you look at how she was killed then, it strikes me that it was going to be first degree or nothing. It's really not a, it didn't look like there could be anything else, but twice there was a hung jury and once he was acquitted on appeal or not acquitted, he was released on appeal. So anyway, a historic day, historic day. We have had two pretty 
ghastly, no doubt about it, ghastly but remarkable trials in this city in the last less than a year now with Bosma and now Badgero. It is uh, pretty remarkable, some of the stories that have been coming out. Not, not the kind of stories we really love to talk about, I'll be honest with you. These are, these are gross, disturbing, unnerving kinds of things, especially for anyone who has a son or a daughter because Tim Bosma was someone's son and someone's husband and someone's father. And Diane Rinderwitz was someone's sister and someone's daughter. And we can forget that sometimes, but man, even putting aside how horrible it was, the ways they died. Tragic, tragic stories for them and for their families. And let's be honest, for the families of the killers. Something that always seems to me that is a tough one to wrap your head around. The killers' families didn't do anything in this. They didn't, they didn't participate. They are... They're caught up in this as well. And, you know, it's different levels, I understand. I'm not, uh, it's, it's a different kind of thing. But, man, it's, it's just, you, you, you follow these stories, you, you follow these cases, and it's just misery from top to bottom everywhere. So I'm glad this one's over. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. You're one of those golf fans who is a golf fan as long as Tiger Woods is playing. Well, you're going to be great. You're going to be real happy now because Tiger Woods is back. Tiger Woods made his return to competitive golf, theoretically, today in Bahamas. He was playing in the Hero World Challenge. It's an 18-man, no-cut, four-day event, so everybody, no one's going to have to go home early. No one's going to feel bad, have shame. He can't miss the cut and then have to answer questions for why he missed the cut. But his day was... Not Tiger-like, at least not as we remember. Not the early Tiger, maybe more like the late Tiger. Joining me to talk a little bit of Tiger and maybe a little soccer later on, Bubba O'Neill from CHH. We're running through the entire roster of the CHCH family tonight. We had Lisa Hefner first, and now Bubba. I don't know who's coming next, Bubba, but you know you got to hold your own now. You're up against some great stars of the CHCH galaxy. Yeah, well, uh, Lisa's been all over that Badgero trial, which uh, yep. I mean, it just obviously broke uh, hours ago, so there's a... Uh, Lots of news to still come out of that, and uh, that's, I guess, some big breaking news in the news world, but I'm a sports guy. Well, and so, so before we get going, I want to test your absolute knowledge of all things Tiger Woods. I did not know this, but I'm going to see if you did. Everyone knows Tiger's not his real name. His real name is Eldrick, yep. which, of course, no one would dare call him. That's like when your mother would call you by your full name <laughs> because you're in trouble. Anytime someone says Eldrick, you know that that was the only time a person who called him that probably was his mom and his wife while, you know, while that was going on. But kind of um, like when people call me Clint. Exactly. You know you're in trouble if someone doesn't call you Bubba and calls you Clint. <laughs> so here is your Tiger Woods question to see how much you know about the great man himself. What is his middle name? Taunt. Wow. Yeah. Yes, Taunt, T O N T. What was his dad drinking? Well, <laughs> what, what is I that believe, as a middle name? I, I can't tell you exactly just because off the top of my head, but I do know there is a meaning behind the taunt, and it had something to do with, I believe, him being in Japan, or there's, there's a meaning behind taunt um, and why he was called, that, that was issued as his middle name. It's a traditional Thai name, I understand. So, and his mom is from Thailand, so there you go. So, taunt. For those of you, if people learn nothing else from this show tonight, <laughs> it's that Tiger Woods' middle name is Taunt. So go to your bar, go to your work, wherever, and make a bet with someone to see if they can actually come up with Tiger Woods' middle name. We have just enhanced your knowledge base this evening. Good question, though. Okay, so speaking of Tiger Woods, um, great start today. Goes off, and I think he had, what, four birdies in the first five or six holes, first eight holes, first and eight. he's looking like... The old Tiger Woods, he's had like 27 back surgeries now. He's back, he's looking good, he's all sharp. And what were you thinking after eight holes? That, exactly that? Hey, the guy looks great. Well, I mean, I didn't know what to think. I mean, and the funny thing was, they interviewed Joel Acaba, is you know, his longtime caddy now, since Stevie Williams. And they asked, asked him 90 minutes before he teed off, so about 10.30 today, what he expected. And Joel Acaba said he didn't know what to expect. Um, especially with the winning conditions. We haven't seen Tiger do 18 competitive. Uh, yeah, four, bir- four birdies in the first eight holes. I thought it was tremendous, but you knew it wasn't going to last. Well, Obviously, he just he, he's not conditioned to be playing 18 holes. There's a serious breeze that was blowing. I thought his putting was good. I thought his approach, his approach stuff was okay. Uh, his short game was okay. 
but everything that was hit, he was hitting off the tee was going left. So whether that was a portion of the wind or just rust, I think it's probably a combination of both. Well, he has this great start, so he's four under after eight, and then all of a sudden it's a bogey on uh, nine, bogey on 11, double bogey on 16, double bogey on 18. He is now 17th out of the 18 men in this thing, and I guess the question, without getting too technical about the golf, is people's first impressions back. I know he's rusty, I know he's 40 now, I know all those things, but Bubba, I got to believe that a lot of people watched this and went, yeah, he's done. He's. I mean, no, he's, I, I, I can't see how you could say that he was done because we, he showed. He showed. I mean, hey, it, when you haven't played anything in 466 days, we're looking at oh, nearly 16 months. It's going to take a time. It, it takes time. All right, and and I think this was the this was the perfect situation for him to return a non-cut field. You're playing 18. There's 18 players, 13 of the top 25 golfers in the world. So you're up up against pretty good competition, and I really don't think he embarrassed himself. And remember, it's only one of four rounds. Uh, who knows what we could see on Sunday. But I think all I needed to see to make me feel okay was some flashes. Because to me, had it been at 18 holes of, of a mess, where like we saw him just before he retired, or retired, before he, he went away, and I know he finished 10th in his last tournament at the Wyndham Championship, but before that, there were some rounds of golf that were just ugly. I mean, in the 80s and stuff like that. A 73, hey, there, there are a lot of golfers out there that would want, go out in that course today and shoot 73. So I don't think he embarrassed himself. I thought he showed flashes. And to me, that is the good sign. When you show flashes to me, will he ever be what we saw for a decade? No. Absolutely not. Because no one, we may never see. We've seen now three golfers, in my opinion, and, and Spieth and McElroy and even uh, Dustin Johnson of guys putting together strings of, of uh, sensational golf for a, a year or maybe two years. Tiger did it for 10. We yeah. may never see that, and maybe in any sport ever again, but I was happy that I did see flashes today. You know, you bring up three good names because you think of, like, it was just a couple of years ago that we were talking about Rory McIlroy taking over the game of golf, becoming the new king of golf. And as soon as that word came over our lips, he was gone. And I mean, he's still around and he's still playing good, but not uh, not dominating. And then the same thing was about Spieth. No one's going to be able to beat Spieth. And then he dropped off again. It, this is not a game that lends itself, as you say, to 10 or 12 years of greatness. You you will be hot for three or four or five weeks or a couple of months or whatever, but it doesn't lend itself to doing what Tiger Woods did. And that puts him, you're absolutely right, and I'm not saying anything people don't know, that puts him in a place with Jack Nicholas, with Arnold Palmer, with maybe one or two others, and you can argue about who's at the top of that list, but there's a very short list of guys that played at the level he did for as long as he did. Uh, Scott, I, I mean, with all due respect to, to the King, I mean, and we all love the King for his personality and what he did in terms of uh, commercializing golf and, and making money for golfers, but I, Tiger's well above Arnold Palmer. That's not even a, a question mark. You're looking at maybe one other man, and that's Jack Nicholas in terms of greatness in their in their sport. And to me, those two stand you know hand in hand. And I know maybe Sam Snead would be right there. He won what eighty two PGA tournaments. Tigers at seventy nine. Um, and it's a different world. I mean, Bobby Jones is someone you could maybe talk about, yeah. but I mean, it's it's th- there's a very small list is the point that that did it over the time the time frame that he did. And you know who was the most happy about him being back today? Anybody who works for the PGA or PGA television. Because <laughs> well, this guy could go out there literally and walk off the course and have a tinkle in the woods and the cameras would follow him and be very happy because ratings would follow. He could do anything as long as he's on the golf course and people are going to tune in. You're, you're, you're so correct with that. I mean, in terms of curiosity, in terms of coverage, in terms of showing old Tiger, new Tiger, breaking down the swing, what changes have been made. The Golf Channel is in their glee right now, and so is CBS and NBC that will be, you know, obviously the chief carriers of golf uh, in the United States and here in Canada. Like, it, 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 you're right, because they're, it, it's amazing that even at this age, because I don't know when's the last time on a day like today, with the exception of major championships, that I ran to my TV. I had some morning duties to take care of, and ran to my TV to make sure that I didn't miss his first swing at 12 noon today. You cannot, I, I don't know about you, I know I'm a sportscaster, I watch more than most, but there are only few guys that I would say, in my opinion, 
even outside of me working, that I would say are appointment viewing. And Tiger still, still, he, I mean, he here's a guy that was, I mean, you have to go look at this. He was world number one for a record 683 weeks. He's now plummeted to 898. And I ran to the TV to see this guy swing. Well, we're, we're now watching him for a different reason. We used to watch him to see what amazing thing he would do and how badly he would destroy the rest of the field. Now we're tuning in to see a couple things. One, is he going to embarrass himself? B, is he going to pull together that moment of tigerness again? And are we going to see some, you know, remember it was Jack Nicholas when he was 46 who won the Masters, came out of nowhere, and you're, everyone now is watching going, is, is there a moment like that in Tiger Woods left? Are we going to tune in one day? And, you know, a perfect example from around here is nobody was watching that tournament, the RSM or RSM a few weeks ago when Mackenzie Hughes won from Dundas. But all of a sudden you get to the third round and he's leading and people are going, wait, what, what? That's the same thing. If Tiger Woods could ever go into the weekend in contention with the TV ratings that you would get now, be crazy. You're, you're absolutely correct. And you're right about Mackenzie. I mean, there, there are few people that saw him shoot 61. Absolutely. And then, of course, the bandwagon were like, hey, what's going on here? This is a Canadian in contention. And you're right. And, and Canadian golf fans and, and, and everyone that loves the sport in this country started to follow. And, of course, people here locally. And there is no different than Tiger Woods. And we will get that feeling whenever it does happen. The funny thing is there's, there's injuries, obviously. You talked about the back, but don't, don't forget the knee injuries. Oh, a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff, yeah. He's, he's gone through, and they're, and they're all multiple surgeries. The crazy thing, Scott, is he has 14 major championships. Jack Nicholas had 18. At where they are, Tiger's soon to turn 41 years old, I believe, in January. Do you know they're still on par right now? That right now, at Jack's age... If you mean you mirrored Jack's age to, to Tiger's age right now, there's, he was on 14 major championships. Yeah, the difference, though, is Jack Nicholas's body was still that of a reasonably young man at that point, and Tiger's is not. I, I, we, we, I'm going to agree with you, but, but he also had a bad hip as well, too. Yep, but I, yep. what I'm going to kind of counter that, though, with modern technology in terms of repairing bodies, it's much superior than it was back then, even 30, 20, 30 years ago. So who knows? And I mean, and we just, we totally agree on this. Tiger is a special, special athlete. And we've seen him do special things. We may still see him do something special. It would be great. Listen, I, there are people who hate Tiger Woods. I understand that there's people who hate every professional athlete or, or actor or actress or singer or whatever. But I think most people would be thoroughly entranced and caught up in the moment if he was to pull it together again and go on a run. And and the haters, the people, you know, they won't like it, but I bet you they would still watch. Absolutely. They would and still watch. Well, they'd be well, grinding their teeth, but they'd be watching. Well, absolutely. It's the old Don Cherry argument, right? I mean, 50% love me, 50% hate me, as long as 100% watch me, right? And, and you're right about that with Tiger. because. But the, the thing is, time really does heal all wounds, does it not? When his personal life blew up and all the stuff that was going on with Elon and the apology and all that stuff that was going on, I mean, Tiger Woods, one of the, I, I think I said this to you before, when Tiger was going well, I thought to myself, this is the one guy that I'll never read a story about in a ragtag. And then his life blew up. <laughs> you probably said that that day too, right? That's the way Murphy's Law works. I, I would have argued anyone. I would have argued anyone. And that was one of my appeals of Tiger is that he was so good and so clean. And when the personality, when his personal life came up and all that stuff happened and basically he became the butt end of jokes on Saturday Night Live, do you know near the last couple years, I mean, the one year he did, three years ago, I think he ended up finishing as golfer of the year. He won five tournaments. All those people started to cheer for him again because I think we, we, we want to see him, or most of us, want to see him do well. We want to see greatness. We it's like just, a comeback story, too. We, we always love, love a comeback story. We love it. We love it. And, and, and all those bad feelings somehow change for a lot of people, where it's like, you know what? Uh, golf, well, I'll just say golf in particular, golf is a better sport, as you said earlier, when Tiger's in, in the hunt. But not just for that reason. You want to know why else th- that people would be on board with this? Is because the truth is, Tiger Woods 
he worked exceedingly hard at his game, but he always made it look easy. It always looked like Tiger Woods was winning because he had way more talent than the other guys. And if Tiger Woods would pull it back together again and compete or win a tournament now, it would look like Tiger Woods is having to win like the average golfer who doesn't have the world's greatest talent and has to grind it out. And there would be great value and great um, it, uh, people would love that that he would have to win it a different way and not just ride on his great talent well and you're I mean great talent Scott and I think you'll agree with me here especially when he was going good the ability great intimidation too oh yeah I mean he would flash a look at guys and guys would miss birdie putts or miss par putts he, we talked about this on the show he was the Mike Tyson of his sport Absolutely. When Mike Tyson would walk into the ring wearing just a towel and nothing else, guys had already lost the fight. And Tiger Woods was the same. If you were teeing up on Sunday afternoon with Tiger Woods in the last round of a tournament, you knew you were done. It was just a question of how. Whether it was the red shirt, the look, whatever it was. and you know, but Or the was, galleries of 400 million people absolutely. scaring you to death. Well, I mean, there are, there are pictures out there that Sports Illustrated have of people, of hordes of people following him that would make him look like he was about to part the Red Sea. I mean, <laughs> yes. it is incredible. I mean, You're boy. talking about my tee-off. When I <laughs> tee-off, I part anybody. We are, uh, we are sadly sh- completely out of time. We never even got to the soccer stuff. Uh, just very quickly, 10 seconds. Uh, what was your word to describe the soccer game last night? You know what, Scott? I can't even use my own words here, but I heard a line today that really, really resonated, I thought, with what we saw last night. Last night... Toronto FC had their Jose Batista bat flip moment in the city of Toronto. Pretty good. Yeah, that's uh, that's a pretty good one. We will see if it is going to persist. We'll see if it is sticky enough with the casual fans. I'm going to talk about that tomorrow when the brightest panel in Hamilton Radio is in here. But, Bubba, listen, appreciate the time as always. Thanks. Yeah, always a pleasure, Scott. Uh, we will be talking a little of that soccer. We ran out of time today. But the Tiger Woods thing is is absolutely true. There is nobody more thrilled about this besides Tiger Woods, I suppose, than the people who are the money people, the the TV people, the PGA people, the ticket takers. Man, Tiger Woods could go out there and shoot 170. Tiger Woods could go out there and play a round that I could beat him, which would require about 170. And he would still draw enormous ratings. Anyone else, channels, flick, flick the channel. But Tiger Woods, people will tune in. And as long as he wants to play, as long as he's willing to play... Man, oh man, the golf people are excited about this. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. You know that we are into December. You know that Christmas is starting to get closer. You've seen the stores starting to put their Christmas stuff up. You've been seeing the commercials for Christmas gifts. You've been seeing all the stuff that's, you know, Christmas-y that is going on now. But the real sign. The real hint that Christmas is getting closer, is inching closer to us, is when you start seeing Handel's Messiah being played at various concert venues around. That is the giveaway. It's that and the Nutcracker. Either of those two things. You see those, you know that we are in the home stretch for Christmas. Boris Brot and the National Academy Orchestra will be performing Handel's Messiah twice next week. Once December 5th at St. Patrick's Church, and the next night, December 6th in Waterdown, at St. Thomas the Apostle. We're always thrilled when we can get Boris brought to join us, and he has again. Boris, thanks for doing this tonight. Hi, Scott. My great pleasure to do so. I have to say that last week uh, I bumped into you and you had just finished teaching students about the connection between classical music and the history of rock. You're now moving into the the Messiah. You you don't stick around in one place too long. No, I try to keep (laughs) one day ahead of the critics. Uh, (laughs) You're reaching me in Montreal and... and, uh, uh, on Tuesday night, uh, as part of the Bach Festival here in Montreal, my orchestra here, the McGill Chamber Orchestra, performed all six ba- uh, Bach Brandenburg concertos uh, to a packed out uh, Christchurch Cathedral. So uh, that was that was a lot of fun. And um, so I'll, I'll be heading back to Hamilton tomorrow to start my rehearsals for for the Messiah season. And uh, we are also giving a Christmas tea on the third at St. Thomas the Apostle at two o'clock in the afternoon. Um, and it's a fabulous tea that includes sandwiches and Christmas cake and cookies and a welcoming glass of Christmas cheer. And uh, prizes will be awarded for the best dressed, and Valerie Trine will be playing, and a children's choir, and Christmas poems, and 
our, our famous or infamous Brought Christmas Quiz and the National Academy Orchestra Brass. Wonderful. Uh, so that's coming. That's that's happening as well uh, as the two performances of Messiah at St. Patrick's Roman Catholic Church uh, on King Street in Hamilton, as well as at St. Thomas the Apostle. Have you ever been out to St. Thomas the Apostle? It's a gorgeous new Catholic church uh, uh, on Center Road in Waterdown. It's really quite beautiful. I have not been there, but I know the area very well. And uh, Before we move on to the... Uh, I just want to ask you something that you just mentioned that I was not even going to talk about, but you mentioned you're in Montreal, you're with your other orchestra. Yes. When you are a conductor who is going out to your other orchestra, I'm assuming that when you go out there and then you get on the podium to conduct them, they already know everything. You're just there to refine the edges because they've been working on this, right? It's, it, you're not starting from scratch with these professional musicians when you show up. Well, professional musicians to start with are, are very fine sight readers. Uh, but uh, anything that is beyond that, of course, they have the music ahead of time. And each individually, uh, of course, they practice their parts and are ready to rehearse. And when I get into rehearse, I mean, the parts are uh, are already prepared as far as they are concerned individually. And it's my job as a, as a conductor to put this all together. Uh, so the orchestra sounds as one. Let's talk about uh, the Messiah, because again, this is the Christmas. Uh, this and the Nutcracker, I say, are probably for people who enjoy the classical higher-end touches of music and culture. These would be the things that would be on there. And I'm assuming, Boris, that when you, as a conductor of a well-known, well-thought-of orchestra, the Messiah essentially is a Christmas must-do. It's pretty difficult for you to dodge around doing this one, I would guess. Well, it's, it's, what is interesting, of course, is Messiah, though it was first given at Christmas time, is only one-third about Christmas. It's two-thirds about Easter. Um, so it's the mm. story, of course, of, of Christ, um, and it centers in terms of, its, of, its, uh, um, of the libretto, of the actual words that are sung and spoken, around things that happened in and around Jerusalem. And so it's, 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 very, it's very beautiful and very dramatic and highly dramatic. Um, and uh, it's it's a work that is almost an opera, uh, except of course the characters in it are, are not staged, um, so they're they're singing the lines, and the lines of course are all in English, uh, so that's easily understand, understandable by our audiences. But if it's two thirds about Easter, why do we not do it at Easter? When did how did it become a Christmas tradition? I have no idea, but it became a Christmas <laughs> tradition okay. in North America. Uh, in Japan, for example, the, the Christmas tradition is to play Beethoven's Ninth Symphony and huh. to do Handel's Messiah only at Easter, which actually makes a heck of a lot more sense, given, I mean, given the, the liturgy. Uh, but that's, this is, it's become the thing to do at Christmas time, and everybody does it. And uh, it's, a wonderful, it's a wonderful work. I mean, it's a work that, that bears repetition, and, and every time you hear it, you hear something new in it. And we have a wonderful cast of, of soloists, um, as well as a professional chorus called the Arcadi Singers. We work a lot for, with them, and they're all young professional musicians as well, as well as the National Academy Orchestra. So the quality is very high, and, and uh, it's, you know, the Messiah can also be a bit tawdry in the sense that um, if every local church does it, then, well, the quality is not quite what you would expect or what, might want, what, what makes it that exciting piece. But for us, it's a new excitement each year. Well, well, explain that to me, because as a conductor, I would think for a piece, for a, for a, a concert, for a piece of music, a b- bigger piece, not just the chorus, but for the, f- to, to put this on, there's only so much that you could do to put personal touches into this, because everybody oh, knows it surprised. so well. Really? Ex- so how, oh, explain absolutely. that. I mean, they're all subtle, of course. They're in terms of emphasis, in terms of dynamics, in terms of speed and tempo and what words are emphasized and all, all that sort of thing. You know, it, it, uh, it, uh, there are, now there are, these are all, of course, subtleties. They're not, uh, they're not something that... You're not changing the never, melody. Yeah, if you if you were if you were not familiar with the work, uh, you might not say, "Oh, well, he's doing this instead of that," because I mean, you need you, in order to say instead of, you have to know what this is to start with. Uh, but you don't have to know; you don't have to have ever heard Messiah to absolutely love it. Uh, it's a work that uh, that right from its first hearing. Uh, you can understand why for over three hundred years it's been popular. Why do you think that is? Why does it resonate so well? I think it's, first of all, tuneful. It's melodic. 
and people like melody. It's, it's full of very beautiful melodies, and every single aria, every single recitativo, every single spoken uh, part of it um, resonates with the audience. If it's not tuneful, well, people don't cleave to it in the same way. And yet one of the interesting things is we live in a society that is increasingly secular, and this is the opposite of that. This is a very religious, very biblical piece of music. The lyrics are right out of the Bible and out of the Book of Common Prayer, I believe, is the other... Yes, uh, that's uh, correct. And, and so I, are you ever surprised when you look through the audience and see people and say, I bet you those people don't necessarily go to church, and yet they are fully immersed in this piece of music? Well, you know, there are times when uh, when people, even people who are religious or feeling or, or devout, they don't necessarily have to go to church every Sunday in order to, uh, to expound their devotion. They can go, you know, twice a year, and this is one of the years, this is one of the times, one of the of the times. That, that people go. But there are even uh, not people with a Christian Christmas background. Easter. But there are, even people, there are even people who wouldn't be of a Christian background at all, who might be Jewish or might be another faith, who would still attend this and think it's just a beautiful piece of music. Absolutely. Certainly. I mean, I, I, I sort of go between both sides because my wife is Anglican, and I'm of a Jewish background. But I, you know, I keep saying, everybody says, well, if you're Jewish, why would you do Messiah? <laughs> and I say, well, he's, a, he's one of our, you know, it's about one of our most famous boys. That's I true. mean, you know, he really succeeded in, in life. And not only that, at the time when Messiah was written, this is all about the time when he was Jewish. He wasn't Christian. He didn't know anything about That's Christianity. That's right. That's this. Do you know much of the history? I, I know you know the music. Do you know much yeah. of the history behind the story of how this was written and the how Handel put it together? Oh, absolutely. It was put together in a month. It was and it was given at, in Ireland in Dublin at the Foundling Hospital. And uh, it was commissioned and uh, written very quickly, and yet it is probably his most famous work. Um, and he employed the, uh, the services of a lyricist by the name of Charles Jennings, who actually chose the texts that, that he then uh, set to music. Yeah, I would think this or water music, but I would put this one at the top, that everybody knows this. I mean, Absolutely. if you hear the chorus, uh, everybody knows this piece of music. Yeah, the Hallelujah Chorus. And it's, there's a lot of history about it, because the king, when he attended the first performance of it, when it came to the Hallelujah Chorus, he was uh, either, either he was very tired and wanted to leave, or he was very <laughs> overcome with what, what was the music, and he stood. And now we have this tradition that whenever the Hallelujah Chorus is, is played, the audience stands. And I turn around and I have the audience sing it, along with the, with the musicians and the choristers. So that's kind of fun. It's a bit of audience participation in the middle of the whole thing. Is, do audiences still do it? Because we, we, oh, we, yes. we as a people now, we don't like rules. We don't like to have to follow customs and traditions. We want to do our own thing. Do people, when it starts, no matter where you play it, do they automatically still rise? Well, I turn around and I, I force them to. <laughs> <laughs> but, when you, but normally, if you were doing it, is it, still the cult, is it still the tradition that most people would still stand up? They would know to do Those that? Those who know. But, I mean, then uh, it's a marvelous thing, you know, to be introducing this piece to, to people for the very first time. Uh, I think that's that's a, an even better uh, experience for me because I'm, I'm letting them in on something that uh, that I love and that uh, has been a very meaningful part of Christmas for me. Is this piece now? You know the subtleties. You were just talking about subtleties about Handel and about the different composers. Is this piece similar to his other works? If you had never heard this before, would you be able to say, "Oh, I can tell clearly that's a Handel piece." Well, I, I think most great composers have a stamp, have a voice. You know immediately that if a piece is by Beethoven or a piece is by Wagner or a piece is by Ravel or Tchaikovsky, because they have a personal stamp, much as in the world of rock music. You know, you know this is this is a piece by the Beatles or uh, this, and now with even younger rock groups like the Arkells, you know, you would know that this is a piece by the Arkells um, without actually somebody telling you this is the Arkells performing. And I think this is this is certainly true of classical music, that there is a voice, there is a stamp, a personality, and that pervades that person's music. Uh, you know, Handel does sound like Handel, and uh, you would know immediately that it was Handel if you had experienced his other works. And if you know the water music, you'd know immediately that uh, when you heard the Messiah, that that was also by Handel, or for that matter, if you were to listen to one of his Concerto Grosso's, you'd know that that is his style of, com of composition, rather than Mozart, for example. 
This, uh, I talked before about how this is a very familiar piece of music. This puts, I would think this would put a lot of pressure on yourself and also on the munici- on the musicians because it is so well known that people would know if it's not done to a certain level. They, this is not but one you, you could, this is not one you could get away with not being up to snuff. This is, this is a must do well, isn't it? Well, I think, you know, musicians are, all of us are, are so dedicated that we never think quite honestly about what the audience is going to think necessarily. We're not, we're not concerned that someone's going to find us out of <laughs> or give less than our best. We always give our best because we're dedicated. We're brought up with that, and, and uh, we are held to a standard that we ourselves impose on ourselves, not the audience. And uh, so, therefore, even if it is familiar... Um, it is it whether it's familiar or unfamiliar doesn't make a difference to us. We are still going to give it our all. Just I've got a couple of minutes left here. I wanted to ask you just change direction just a tiny little bit because earlier this sure. week I had a McMaster PhD psychology student on the show. You may have read about her in the paper. She is studying. Her name is Sarah Laid, and she is studying the concept of stage fright. And she was talking about piano players and musicians who do this full time. And she says that probably 50 to 70% of people who perform full time still get some kind of stage fright. When you walk up onto a podium or before you walk out from backstage, do you ever have butterflies? Oh, yes. And I know very well that if I don't have butterflies, it's going to be terrible. Really? Uh, no, I, you, you need to have that sense of, in French, we call it le trac. It's a your sense of butterflies in your stomach and the sense of anticipation. Now, the moment you walk out on that stage, of course, it's gone. Now, this has helped a lot as far as I'm concerned, because when I was studying and I was first learning to play the violin when I was three and four and five, my mother would put all my teddy bears out on the living room couch and put them on, put bow ties on them, and I had to give conscience for them. And, uh, you know, consequently, every time I look out at an audience, all I see is teddy bears. Uh, so really, I'm not, the fact that there are people there doesn't, doesn't necessarily faze me. But I, you know, it, it, it's interesting, though. I am more nervous. I do a lot of public speaking. And I am more nervous in front of a small group of people, like a board of directors, for example, giving a report, uh, much more nervous than I am speaking for 10,000 or 15,000 people. And it, you, it, you just, it becomes a C and you don't really see it. And when you are backstage, is this the, a little butterfly, or are you truly nervous about going on there? I'm not nervous in the sense of being afraid. I'm nervous in the sense of anticipation. Fair enough. No, yep. there is, you know, there's always the kind of lurking fear in, your ba- in the back of your mind that you won't remember something, or that you know, you'll be phased by a, a, mem- a memory aspect of it. Because uh, when I conduct mostly you know, a piece like Messiah, I'm doing it for memory. Uh, because you can't concentrate on the musicians and, and the singers and the soloists if you've got your nose in the score. Uh, so that aspect of it, you know, there's the odd fear, and you, I certainly have the odd dream where I'll, I'll wake up in the middle of the night at a start thinking that I'd forgotten something or that I, I couldn't remember exactly how the rest of that piece goes. It is, um, it's a fascinating bit of psychology that someone who's done it as long and as well as you have would still have that. I, I, I find it amazing. I mean, it, it's common to everybody, I'm sure, but it just... Oh, it is. And I think the older you get, the worse it gets, in a sense, because, uh, first of all, you demand more of yourself. Uh, but also, you know, the memory aspects of it uh, uh, is perhaps not as keen as when you're 20. You did say, though, that if you know that if you don't have butterflies, it's going to be terrible. Did that ever happen? Yes, often. It doesn't happen often that I don't have the butterflies, but I know that if I don't have that sense of anticipation that something's going to happen, I need that sense of, of, of urgency and anticipation. And, and it's much, you know, people have all, all kinds of habits about performing. You know, I remember Leonard Bernstein, when I was his assistant, he would uh, wear Kusevitsky's cufflinks, gold cufflinks, every time he performed. And he had to kiss those cufflinks before he went out on stage. Otherwise, he didn't somehow feel that, that he had the courage to go out on stage. Uh, it's, it's fascinating, the psychology of that fear of going on stage. And, but it's mo- mostly a fear of yourself, not the public or the orchestra. It's, it's, and t- really, it isn't fear. It's anticipation. What is the Boris Brot superstition, then? What do you do before you go on stage every time? Well, first of all, I don't eat before I perform. Um, I, I, last meal I will have is, is lunch. 
and I will not have dinner until after the concert. It's not very good for losing weight, uh, but I cannot <laughs> perform on a full stomach. Uh, I feel uh, I get nauseous, and I, I the same with speaking. You know, often I do dinner time speaking or lunchtime speeches in the rubber chicken circuit, and I never bother with the rubber chicken because I just don't eat beforehand. Uh, but apart from that, I don't think I have any real superstitions of that kind. Um, I, uh, you know, I'm 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 a fairly uncomplicated person when it comes to that. Um, I look forward to the opportunity to perform. I, I love every minute of it, and uh, I love con- com- communicating that love to the musicians and to the audience. It is, uh, it's always great chatting, and you, as I say, you have uh, three events, but the two messiahs coming up December 5 and December 6. If someone is interested in getting tickets, do you know how they could get those? Yes, they can call us um, at 905-525-7664. Uh, that's 525-SONG, S-O-N-G. Uh, or they can look us up on the net, broughtmusic.com. Uh, and uh, uh, we will be eager to help them uh, buy tickets or find out a little bit more about it. December 5th is in Hamilton. Dece- St. Patrick's, which, yeah. At St. Patrick's, which is next Monday. And, That's correct. And Tuesday is in Waterdown. Either one, uh, as I say, go as as Marv, or as Boris just said, 905-525-7664 or broughtmusic.com. Boris, always appreciate having you on. Thanks for taking the time don't tonight. Don't forget the tea on Sunday. Oh, yeah, and the tea. <laughs> the tea. That's also on the website, at, I know, at uh, broughtmusic.com. The tea is also Indeed. available. Boris, thanks for doing this. Really appreciate it. You're most welcome. Thanks for asking me. That is... Have uh, a great Christmas, by the way. You as well. You as well, and happy Hanukkah. Thank you so much. Uh, it is uh, it is the one of the first signs. Other than Costco getting their Christmas decorations out in May, this is really the the moment when they start playing the Hallelujah chorus. This is really the moment when you know that we are edging closer to Christmas. Well, that and when they start showing Mr. Bean specials on TV. For some reason, Mr. Bean always seems to accompany Christmas too. I've never quite figured that one out, but that's okay. That's okay. There's lots of little things that I still don't understand, but that's okay. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900, CHQ.